It's important to teach our kids to give to missions so when they're older they understand this is an important part of who we are as Christians, who we are as a church. Um, For the rest of you this morning, if we will, go ahead and turn in your Bible to the Gospel of Mark chapter 13. Today we're beginning a series within the series, okay? We're staying in the Gospel of Mark, but we're actually going to be diving in for the next four, maybe five weeks, looking at what is called eschatology. It's a fancy theological word, eschaton, that's the end of time. The study of eschatology actually encompasses what comes next. Uh, It can be anything from what happens after you die to the last days or the end of days as some people refer to them. And so we're going to be diving into that over the next few weeks. Like I said, when, I, when we began this study in Mark, one of the things I consistently reminded us of is our life imitates our theology. Well, your eschatology is part of your theology. How you view the end times depends on what you, I mean, will have a great impact on your life. I started to say that wrong. Sorry. But someone recently pointed out there that if you study these things, if you study the last days, there's really not a lot of orthodoxy throughout church history. We've had various views. In fact, if you look at just the millennial reign of Christ, we all agree there is a millennial reign of Christ of some sort. We all agree there is a time where Christ is going to gather his church together and take them into eternity, that there will be a resurrection of the dead. There's no, no qualm about that, but when it comes to how that plays out at the end of time, there's always been debate about these things. Now, concerning the millennial reign of Christ, we do acknowledge that at some point there will be a thousand-year reign where Christ sets up his kingdom, where he is Lord of all, and all of these things take place. But even that, there's been some debate throughout history. There's a group uh, of theologians uh, and and Christians, they're called praetorists. They believe that Jesus came back in some form, usually they'll say it was in a spiritual form, in the year A.D. 70 when Jerusalem and the temple, the second temple, and we're going to talk about that this morning uh, in the message, when it was destroyed. They're called praetorists. They believe the, the kingdom is somehow going on today. There are those who believe the millennial reign of Christ is currently taking place, that there's not a, an actual or literal thousand-year reign. And just like how we have atheists who believe there is no God, these are called amillennialists or amillennialists. They don't believe in a literal thousand-year reign. They believe Christ is reigning now. And at some point in the future, he's going to say, okay, enough is enough. I'm going to come establish my my uh, my church and my kingdom. And basically from that point, we have the new heavens, the new earth, the great white throne of judgment. Again, those things we all agree will happen because scripture is very clear in Revelation 19 and 20 that those things must happen at the end of time. Christ will judge the living and the dead. Every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess at that time. Jesus Christ is Lord. We understand that. There's also those who believe that they're in this thing called post-millennialism, that Christ will return after his millennial reign is up. Now, there are two different types of post-millennialists and, and within that group, and there are those within uh, the church who might say, well, what's the difference between that and amillennialism? Well, it's how they understand the nature of that kingdom of Christ. You see, the amillennialists will say we are not reigning right now, but Christ will come back and then we will. The post-millennialists, and I'm, I'm not trying to oversimplify things, but I'm trying to make sure they're understandable and something we can cover in the intro of a sermon. There, there are two groups. One of them would be the ones who believe we will, as Christians, eventually take over the world and reign in government. Those are the, like your Doug Wilsons, your, Christ, your Christian nationalists who believe we should conquer this country, take it over in one aspect or another, and rule the world. And when Christ is ready, he will come back 
and reign. In the post-millennialist camp, there's also a group that's called the Dominion Theology, or Seven Mountain Mandate. And this is another group. They believe that there are seven mountains. When you look at Revelation, I believe it's 14 or 16, it talks about seven mountains. Well, it's a misunderstanding, I think, of that passage because if you read the very next verse, it talks about seven Roman emperors and Rome itself was a city on seven mountains, seven hills. So they, they take that and they say that represents the seven mountains that, that Christians must take over. And it's usually something like government, business, entertainment, media, education, religion, the family, some variation of that. Uh, Hillsong, you're familiar with Hillsong. They are very big on the Seven Mountain Mandate. It's one reason they have pushed their music so strongly to make sure they take that mountain. And there are other churches and other groups who do that as well. It's a very popular theology in the New Apostolic Reformation. Now, the final view, what we would find ourselves in, is the premillennialist view. Premillennialism is divided into dispensational premillennialism and historic, prim, well, I would say premill to say it shorter because it gets to be a lot. Millennialism, amillennialism, amill, postmill, premill, okay? And for the kids taking notes, I think that's how it's written in there. Historic pre-mill says that at some point the tribulation will begin, we're still here, and Christ will come at the battle of Armageddon and he will mop the floor with the Antichrist and the devil and, and all that, and then he will establish a, a thousand year literal reign on earth, at the end of which the devil is released and, and conquered one more final time, and then there's the great white throne of judgment, and so on. Now, we would also fall into that camp, but we are what's called a pre-tribulation premillennial, and because of that, we would fall in what's called the dispensational millennialist camp. I know some of you are saying these sounds these sound so alien and so foreign. That's okay. All right. You can go back and listen on the podcast or watch on YouTube and, and decipher all this code that I'm speaking. But the pre-tribulation means we believe there is a literal seven-year tribulation that Christ will rapture his church. In fact, one of the words used in Greek in, in the book of Revelation means to take into protective custody that he will take us into protective custody in a sense and rescue us out of these seven years, that we will not face that. That doesn't mean it's a get-out-of-jail-free card or anything like that. Please do not go home and rack up $20,000 in credit card debt and say, well, pastor said we're going to be raptured. Okay, that's not what I'm saying at all. Please don't do that. But we do believe there is a pre-tribulation rapture. And after this seven years, what, what is called the Great Tribulation, and actually ends up coming up in our series a little bit, this seven-year tribulation, at the end of which, then there's the Battle of Armageddon, then the thousand-year reign. And at the end of that thousand-year reign, or millennial reign, then there's the great white throne of judgment, the new heavens, new earth, and we're with Christ for all eternity. So you see, it gets to be very confusing, and there's a lot of information there. So it's important that we take our time and we go slowly through this text, what Jesus himself actually said about the last days. Okay, and I think scripture is very clear on this matter and how it's said and what's it say and all of that stuff. But we should take our time. In fact, the book of Revelation guarantees those who study it and those who read it will be blessed. So we want to make sure we take time to study the end times. If you were in our Revelation class a couple years ago, that we took our time. We went through that very slowly. All that to say, let's begin our journey for the next four or five weeks in the book of Mark, chapter 13. Will you stand with me as I read this morning? And as he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? And Jesus began to say to them, see to it that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he and will mislead many. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. 
Those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pains. But see to yourselves, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be beaten in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a witness to them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed in all the nations. And when they lead you away, delivering you up, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say what is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. And brother will betray brother to death, and father his child. And children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Amen. That's the word of God. You may be seated this morning. I've titled this little mini-series, Signs of the Times. Because we always are looking and we watch the news. If you've ever been in a discussion and you just didn't know what to say at the end of that discussion, I'm just going to give you a tip. One of the ways you can end the entire discussion is just say, yeah, it's the signs of the times. And people will nod their head and say, yep, it sure is. And you could do that for 2,000 years because we've thought it's the signs of the times for a long time. But the more we get closer, the more we see the more we see the signs of those times taking place before us. Now, today being part one, the subtitle would be Extreme Days. There was an old Toby Mac song with that title, so I just kind of ripped it off because I thought, you know what, that is perfectly fitting. We are living in extreme days. It's hard to look at the news. It's hard to read a newspaper. It's hard to have conversations without politics, without wars, being part of our conversation, uh, even talk about famine, actually, which is in our text, becomes a part of our conversation. There's, there's people who were telling us now we need to eat crickets, right? Well, I don't want to do that unless I absolutely have to. And uh, in a famine, you might absolutely have to. So there's the, there's the conversation starter for you after church. If you're at the pizza ranch and one of you looks at somebody and says, you remember when pastor was talking about eating crickets? Please don't do that, okay? Especially if they're eating salad, because that just crunches like a cricket. So don't do that. But we are living in extreme days. And if you want to write this down, we are living in extreme days, but the Christian will endure to the end. Above all things, we have to remember that. We are living in extreme days, but if we are in Christ, we will endure to the end. The apostles believed they were living in extreme days. So I want to be very clear about this this morning. This is not intended to scare anybody. This is not intended to set some kind of date as to when Christ is going to return. I don't believe in doing that. I think that is, that is outright blasphemous, saying you know better than Jesus himself. It's nothing of that sort. But we have to accept as Christians... Like the apostles, we are living ourselves in a Babylon-type nation that glorifies worship of self, sensuality, immorality, idolatry, the likes we have not seen in this nation before. We have to recognize that and understand that. But make no mistake, God is not idle. God is not caught off guard. God knows what this nation has been up to. He's not surprised by anything. We believe in the sovereignty of God. Amen? He's very aware. And Peter tells us the Lord's not slow about his promise, as some consider slowness, but is patient toward you. He's talking to the believer there. He's patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. When he's saying he's patient toward you, are you sharing the gospel? Are you trying to bring as many people with you when you go? Are you going, I mean, I don't, well, that sounds suicide bomberish, Pastor Jeff. I meant take them to heaven. Are you telling people about the love of Christ? Are you loving them the way Christ would into eternity, into the church, into fellowship with Christ? Because here's the thing. So many people love to talk about the end of time, but we don't want to live like we're at the end of time. We don't want to evangelize like we're living in the last days. We don't want to think 
about it as much as we, we probably should. We try to stick our head in the sand and just say it'll all blow over. Jesus says, you cannot do that and call yourself my disciple. He says, you watch. You be alert. You be ready. You see, we see this all throughout Scripture. Jesus does not tell the church ever to just sit still, but to be very active. In fact, that was his great commission to the church. Go make disciples of all nations, right? Why? Because the days are short. Behold, he's coming quickly. He's coming like a thief in the night. And at that time, we're going to have to answer as Christians for why we didn't live like we were living in the last days. We're going to have to answer for all the times we didn't talk about Jesus just as much as we talked about him wrong. As for the text today, Matthew covers it the most, this whole conversation, Matthew 24 and 25. It takes place in Luke 21. If you like the the corresponding verses within the scriptures, the, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Matthew clearly writes the most about it. But this passage opens up this dialogue that Jesus has with his disciples to prepare them for the things that are coming. So they're not caught off guard. Now there are going to be things that they saw in their lifetime and there are going to be things that as we go through this we're going to see happening even in our lifetime. But we have to understand we are in those extreme days. And yet if we are in Christ we will persevere. We will endure. We go back to verses 1 and 2. And as he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Now he's leaving the temple, finally. This is Wednesday of the Passion Week. The cross is looming. He has spent all day long in the, the, the portico of Solomon, Solomon's porch. He's been teaching. He's been preaching. He's been attacked by the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, the chief priests, the elders, the scribes. He's had the Pharisees and the, the Herodians come and attack him. The Sadducees have tried to capture him. And then one lone scribe had some questions. And then finally, Jesus, for the whole purpose he came, he finally gets to sit and teach. And now, now he gets up and he's going to head home. Well, not home. He's going to head back to Bethany. He's going to head to rest for the evening at at Lazarus' house. And as he's leaving the temple, one disciple makes this observation. We don't know who this disciple is. We're not told. Some people think it's Judas because Judas was infatuated with wealth. Some people think it was Peter because Peter never could keep his mouth shut. But we don't know who it was. And he looks around and he says, in this day and age, by the way, this would have been one of the most obvious statements. Like the reason the rest of the disciples didn't just look at him and go, duh. It's not recorded in scripture, but when you read it, you might think that. In fact, that might be the reason they don't name the guy because he's saying something so, okay, thanks, Captain Obvious, you know. He's, he's saying this, and if you and I were standing there, you, you would hear him say, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. And you might sit there because it's, it's kind of a hot day, and you're ready to go rest too, and you might look around and say, Yeah, they've been here the whole time, man. What are you just now pointing it out? Why, why is this your focus? Well, I think this disciple is doing this because, you know, he's trying to say, Jesus, you've been really hard about hard teaching about what goes on inside the temple. You've been hard on the people in the temple, and and rightly so. But the temple itself is beautiful. The temple itself is a nice thing, right? So surely, Jesus, you you can't hate all this glorious architecture and whatnot. Now, the temple was beautiful. In fact, if you know your Bible, you know the temple itself, the original temple, sometimes called Solomon's Temple, was built around 957 B.C. It's actually not Solomon's Temple. If you read your Bible and you know this, Solomon builds it, yes, but it was designed and all the materials were provided by David, his father. It was in David's heart to build the temple, not Solomon's. Solomon, when he gets around to building it, he builds it, he dedicates it. There's this awesome encounter he has with God. But the very next thing you see, Solomon spends twice as much time building his own house than he spends 
building the temple. So you see his priorities and where they really were. Solomon was really about his own riches. And that's gonna, that temple gets destroyed around 587, 586 BC by the Babylonians when they invade. They tear it down. And like I said, we call it Solomon's temple, but it wasn't his. And then the exile takes place. For 70 years at least, the people of Israel were taken into captivity. And towards the end of that, God begins to release the people back to the promised land. And it falls to this man, Ezra, and Ezra was a student of the law, student of the word of God. It falls to him to rebuild the temple. And as they pour the foundation for what's going to become the second temple, many of the priests, the Levites, the heads of fathers' households, the older men who saw the first house of the Lord, the first house of Yahweh, they're weeping with a loud voice because they see the foundation and they acknowledge how poor Israel has become. They knew the glory of Solomon's temple and now how spiritually deprived as also wealth and everything else had been deprived of the nation. It was a temple that Ezra built, but it was a poor copy of what had once stood there. But over time, they're gonna continue to make repairs. They're gonna refurbish. They're gonna put new siding on the old house, right? And over time, they're going to continue to build and add to this. And then in the year 20 BC, this guy named Herod the Great is going to come along, and he's going to really pour a lot of Roman money into this thing. He wants it to look nice. And so it becomes known as Herod's Temple. He invests so much into it. He actually tries to make it twice the size of the Temple of, of Solomon's day. The stones are recut. Gold is laid inside the walls. And it's, it's one of the most beautiful buildings, build, most beautiful structures in all of history. The historian Josephus, the Jewish historian, he said to look upon the temple of Yahweh was to look upon a snow-capped mountain in all its glory. That's how beautiful this temple was. So when Jesus looks at this man and he says to him, this is all going to fall apart. This is all going to, no stone's going to be left upon another. He's using Old Testament language there to say total destruction will befall this temple. And Jesus says this happens for the reader of Mark, the curtain is pulled back and we see the divinity of Christ on display. He's prophesying what's going to happen to the temple. And it happens in 70 A.D., in 70 AD, a man named Titus, a Roman general, son of Emperor Vespasian, he burns the temple so hot, the rocks crack, they break. What they did was they burned it to ash, and then they came along and they sifted the gold and the jewels and all the things that were left and took those out, and it became Rome's property. The only thing left standing had nothing to do with the temple. It was actually a wall under the temple mount, and it still stands today. It's a support wall. It's called the Rabbi's Tunnel, and it makes up part of what's now known as the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. You can still see that. And all three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels, they agree on this story that Jesus says this. Now, if you know the glory of the temple and you've seen the beauty of the temple and you're one of Jesus' 12 and you're standing there and you've heard him say this, well, there's a reason they're quiet between verses 2 and verse 3. They don't say anything until Jesus gets situated. The man they followed, the man they've trusted, heard teach and preach has just now told them, this city's going to burn. This temple's not going to stand forever. And so they go silent until they get over to the Mount of Olives, to Bethany where they're headed. Now, we read this in, in verses 3 and 4. It says, And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? Notice the disciples here who are listed. Matthew and Luke are just going to let us know it's the 12. That he's just talking to his disciples. Mark is very specific, and he's specific for a reason. Math, uh, it's it's uh, Peter, James, John. Those three happen to be with Jesus all the time. 
But who's the fourth guy mentioned? Andrew. Why does Mark do this? He's circling back to the very beginning of his letter, the very beginning of his gospel, and he's saying, these four have been with Jesus the longest. If anyone deserves a straight answer, it's these four men, all four of them, who got out of the boat that day and decided to walk behind him, now are coming to Jesus and they're saying, when is this going to happen? What's taking place? They are speaking for the 12, but they want to know what's going to happen. And Jesus' actions this week have no doubt given them hope that the kingdom's going to be established soon. This isn't, by the way, this is not information for just anybody. This is a message for the disciple of Jesus. What he's going to tell them is not meant for the unbelieving ear. To try and tell an unbeliever of the truth of Christ's return, what often ends with them saying, well, that, you're just trying to scare me into believing. Or they'll ignore it entirely. They don't want to hear it. This is a conversation for the disciple of Christ. And the disciple of Christ would recognize where Jesus is now sitting is on the Mount of Olives. And the disciple of Christ, if you recall from a few weeks back, would understand Zechariah prophesied, this is where it begins. Zechariah 14.4 says, And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem. Where is Jesus at in this scene? He's on the Mount of Olives and he's looking right at the temple he said is going to be destroyed. And then if you're a disciple and you're hearing this and you're putting it together, you hear the clock, tick-tock, tick-tock. What's happening? Is it about to erupt? It says, uh, on the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. And they're probably sitting there thinking, let's get ready. It's going to happen. It's coming. All right, Jesus, when? When? I imagine John's anxious. Andrew's just looking for the army of angels to come marching down the slope and stand beside them. James is probably just looking around. Can I, can I make a club out of this branch? Is there a sword anywhere I can get? And Peter, Peter, I imagine it's him, myself, my own personal opinion. I think it's him who says, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign. And what they're basically asking Jesus is how soon? Should we get ready now? Is it happening now? Because they believe, Luke 19 tells us, they thought the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. And so they go to Jesus, when will the temple be destroyed? When will you rise up and take your place as king and overthrow Rome? When are your promises going to come true? And church, we've been asking the same thing for almost 2,000 years. Jesus, when? Jesus, when? When will these things be? What will be the sign? You know, in the ancient times, smoke would be used as a signal. Or you'd look to your leader and he'd take his spear and point it towards the battlefield. And that's when you knew to run. And they're saying, Jesus, are you going to take your spear and hold it over and we're going to take the city? Jesus, is there, is there smoke to be looking for? That's what they're saying here. Can we expect, what can we expect to see to know the time is right? You see, they thought it was going to happen so soon. And of course, Jesus is going to tell them signs, but not until verses 24 and 25, so you've got to wait on those. But the days of the disciples, they'd been in the city. They sensed the energy of the town. Something is happening. They're not happy with Jesus. And Jesus, if you've paid attention the last few weeks, he's not happy with them either. Something is about to happen. Worlds are about to collide. And the disciples are saying, Jesus, when? What do we have to look for? And I love Jesus' answer. And Jesus began to say to them, see to it that no one deceives you. Oh, that tells me it's not going to happen anytime right away. First thing out of Jesus' mouth is something the church should never take for granted, though. See to it. It's the Greek word blepo, and the, the tense here, it means similar. We've seen that word quite a few times recently. It means keep your eyes open. Watch. Keep watch. Blepo typically means some sort of tense of watching or seeing. You notice the first thing he says is watch, not fear. Fear. 
Watch, not fight. Watch, not stick your head in the sand. This is a call to vigilance. This is a call for the watchman to rise up. This is a call to stand because everything Jesus is going to say after this sentence is a guarantee. Many will. When you hear, nation will rise. They will deliver you. You will be beaten. Brother will betray brother. And so on and so forth. It's not many might or if you hear. It's guaranteed. So he's saying stay vigilant. Stand strong. Watch. Because it's coming. If the disciples thought their days were extreme, the message of Jesus is watch and endure because harder times are coming. How do we do this? How is the Christian to stand and watch and look and know what they are looking at by Scripture, by being rooted in the Word of God, by building our foundation upon that rock? Because many will come along and try to steal the sheep from the Good Shepherd. He says, many will come in my name saying, I am he and will mislead many. It's the Greek word poly or poloi. It means a great number of them. They'll come in his name. That means they're going to come and they're going to claim to be under his authority. They're going to come and they're going to claim they work for Christ, that they are on his side, on his team, and speaking under his authority, speaking for him on his behalf. Some will be even so bold, so arrogant to say they are Christ himself. Matthew words it this way, he says, For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And I want to pause there for just a moment. What does the word Christ mean? Christos. We talked about this last week. It means anointed one. It's very similar to Messiah. Meshiach is the Hebrew word meaning the anointed one. They are coming saying they are anointed under his authority. Church, I've said this before. Please hear me again. Beware the preacher who speaks of his own anointing. The pastor is called. The evangelist is called. But those who come and say they're under an anointing, that's a red flag. I'm not saying they're evil. I'm not saying they're all bad. But watch. Watch them carefully. Pastors are not anointed. Evangelists are not anointed. They are called. Apostles are appointed. Not a, they are appointed by Christ himself. Prophets are set apart from birth. And they suffer as they call out kings and queens. There are a lot of men and women today who claim to be under an anointing these days and they would not suffer for Christ for a single hour, much less bear the burden of an actual prophet or an apostle. These men who claim to be anointed, Jesus says, watch them. Watch out for them. They come in my name, but when the time comes, he'll say, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. And they're going to say, but didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And he's going to say, I never knew you. Be on the watch, because if they can, they will mislead many. They will lead you astray. They will deceive you. They will use you as merchandise is what 2 Peter tells us. The Lord's brother, Jude, was very, very clear on this. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Why? Because they claimed they were under an anointing. They got in because we believed they were under the authority of Christ. They came in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turned the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8 of Jude says, Yet in the same way these men also by dreaming defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. That's actually talking about that word blaspheme means they revile angels and saying basically that they know better than even the angels, that they can command angels and station angels and tell them where to go and what to do. We do not see that in scripture. 
And yet these men say they have that ability. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. They are clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. Does it not shock you that some of these big name speakers don't have churches in their local community that they lead themselves? Because people could watch them there. People could see their fruit of their ministry there. People could smell the nonsense that they preach there. These are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lusts, and their mouths speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of their own benefits. Church, they were in the church in Judas's time, uh, Jude's time, sorry, they are here now. Many expose these false teachers, and yet they get dismissed because we are living in the days Jesus warned us of because lawlessness is multiplied. Most people's love will grow cold. If you don't believe that, and I say this with the the love of a pastor, if you don't believe that, I would love to sit under the rock you've been under for the past few years because it must be nice when we see these things pouring into the church more and more every year, it should be cause for us to, to watch and to stand strong. Good example, and I, I came across this in my study. Many, quote unquote, leaders in the evangel, evangelical community and in Christianity will often refer to the Muslim as our brothers and sisters. Or Mormons as our brothers and sisters. Jehovah's Witnesses as our brothers and sisters. Church, there is nothing further from the truth. Well, we believe in the same God is a lie from the pit of hell. We absolutely do not. We believe in a God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We believe Jesus is of the same substance as the Father. Both Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses believe Jesus was a created being. Mormons, or sorry, Muslims, wow, a lot of M words. Muslims, to their belief, they don't believe Jesus was the son of God because to say God, Allah, has a son is a blasphemous accusation. They don't believe Jesus died on the cross. They do believe he ascended to heaven like the prophet Elijah, but hang on to that thought for a moment. Mormonism and Islam, by the way, have very similar beginnings given their writings by a so-called angel their prophet being a man who supposedly couldn't read or write. And there's many, many more. There's actually a book from the early 1900s, Mormonism, the Islam of America. If you can ever find it, it's worth reading. But for the Muslim, their theology comes from the Quran or the Sunnah. Now keep in mind, many Christian leaders, even today, would have us stand side by side, holding hands, singing songs, loving them, loving them straight to hell. Because there's no gospel of Christ in their religion. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The Muslims believe in the coming of a character called the Mahdi. And if you study the Mahdi, study him carefully, you will notice he is exactly page by page, paragraph by paragraph, a carbon copy of what the, Bible, the, Bible, the, the biblical authors call the Antichrist. He is someone who's going to have an army. He will literally rise up out of nowhere. When we talk about Revelation chapter 6, the Muslim will often quote that to talk about the coming of the Mahdi. That he will wipe the map of Jews if he possibly can. And he'll rise up and be a leader that unites the whole world. He'll rise out of global turmoil and take control and establish a new world order and kill any who oppose him. Does that not sound familiar? The biblical antichrist is Islam's savior. They are not our brothers and sisters. They believe Jesus will return, but not our Jesus, their version of him, a radical Muslim Jesus. And when he arrives, he's going to be holding in his hands the wings of the angels who escorted him back down to earth, feathers and all. And he's going to pray to the Mahdi. Imagine that. And this Jesus is the false prophet of Revelation. He aids and helps the Antichrist, the beast, carry out his executions as he tramples the world. And yet as Christians, there are those who would say they speak on our behalf, our leaders, and they shake hands with them. These people do not worship the same God. 
church, we are to watch if we are to endure. Verses 7 and 8, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pains. Church, this isn't just prophecy. This is human history. There have been numerous wars. Everyone, everyone likes to say, well, nobody has caused more wars than religion. To which I often will reply, have you heard of oil? <laughs> or sugar? There was a time that was a very big commodity. More blood has been spilled over those two things than religion could ever hope to add. And in fact, if you talk about ideologies causing war, well, Darwinian atheism that says only the strong survive, that's killed more people than any war based on religion, more than the Crusades, Spanish Inquisition, Manifest Destiny, whatever you want to call it. Darwinism has killed more people than, than that, even almost a hundred times. If you add up only, and I mean only, the, the murders caused by Stalin, Pol Pot, Mao Zedong, and Fidel Castro, you have almost a hundred times the deaths cause in the name of religion through the crusades and the spanish inquisition and other things and even then as a christian we would say that's the abuse of christianity that's not true christianity and yet jesus says this is just the beginning it's just the start of the birth pains paul refers to that. he says well they're saying peace and safety destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape these things lead to the rapture of the church and they will escalate even further in the great tribulation until the Lord's second coming. The days are extreme and will be extreme and yet the Christian must endure. Verses nine and 10, but see to yourselves for they will deliver you to the courts and you will be beaten in the synagogues and you will stand before the governors and kings for my sake as a witness to them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. Church, this is where we get uncomfortable. I don't like hearing this, right? Come to Jesus and this is what you're promised. Come to Jesus and it's not gonna be easy. They'll deliver you to the courts. They will. They will have you beaten in the synagogues. They will have you stand before governors and kings for his sake. We don't want that. We want our best life now. We want to cash our heavenly treasures in now so we can spend time with them here. We want to feel good. I don't even like that our air conditioner is broken today. We want to be comfortable. We don't want to be uncomfortable for Jesus. I Personally, I, I don't. You know, I, you remember back in the 90s, the Baptists wanted to boycott Disney because they had a whole day set aside for homosexuals. So the SBC, they pushed this out, and people in the Assemblies of God were saying, we should join them, we should. And man, that didn't work because nobody did it. And now if you take your kids to Disneyland, there's a, there's a fairy godmother named Nick who has a beard as nice as mine, and he'll help your son or daughter pick out their princess dress. And I, I would love to tell you, church, that I like to, I am all about boycotting Disney, but man, that next season of Mandalorian might be good. We don't want to be uncomfortable for Jesus. But we are to endure if we have to. We have to learn to do that now while things are easy, while things are comfortable. And our suffering and our pain will be the word says a witness to them. Another translation says a testimony to them because even in the midst of the beatings, the torture, our faith and our endurance will preach to those who don't believe yet. We see this in Stephen in Acts chapter seven as he preaches to the very people who will drag him outside the city and have him stoned. Paul does this in Acts 27. He's beaten, he's chained, eventually shipwrecked and yet he still looks for every opportunity to share the gospel and stay faithful to his God and his savior. And he tells anyone who will listen about it. Fox's book of martyrs is filled with stories like that. Christians who endured through persecution and suffering. You guys know I like the story of Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of, of John, the disciple. 
And when he was arrested, the proconsul told him, he said, I have wild beasts at hand. I will cast you to these unless you change your mind. Meaning that Polycarp was told he had to repent of loving Jesus and acknowledge his love for Caesar, that Caesar was Lord. Or he was going to send in these animals. He was going to call in these wild animals who would rip Polycarp apart. And you know what Polycarp said? Two words, call them. Send them in. Do your worst. And as the proconsul looked on in shock, the Christian man began to preach. He said, we have no reason to repent from better to worse, but it is good to change from wickedness to virtue. He lived in extreme days and he endured. Verse 11, and when they lead you away, delivering you up, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. I have heard pastors use this as an excuse to not prepare a sermon. That is not what it's about. Okay? When you are persecuted, do not worry about what to say. Pray, and the Holy Spirit will lead you. He says, when, not if. And yet through that entire passage, the words that hit me hardest were three simple words, do not worry. Do not fear. As he told Joshua, he tells us, have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? Do not be in dread or dismayed for Yahweh your God is with you wherever you go, even if it means when you go to the gallows or the hangman's noose or the firing squad, he is with you. And the Spirit empowers us to say what we must. You know, so many times as a Christian, I, I read books and I, I think about that. And, and I used to think, man, I don't know what I'm going to say. Because I know me. And if I don't have it written down somewhere, I'm going to say the wrong thing. And open mouth, insert foot was designed for Jeff Williams. And I worry about that. And then I came across the story of Corey Tinboom. And she wrestled with it too. She saw the Nazis were closing in on her family. And she said to her father, she said, Papa, I don't know if I can suffer for Jesus if it comes to that. And he said, my darling, when I ask you to go to the store, do I give you the money a week ahead of time or the moment you prepare to walk out the door? And she said, as I'm walking out the door, he said, so too, God will strengthen you in the time of need. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. He will strengthen you in the time of need. And brother will betray brother to death and father his child and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. Opposition to the Christian is going to come through so many different vessels, so many different ways, so many different channels, through the government, through co-workers, through former friends, even through our closest family. Jesus warns us about this. He says, do you think I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two, two against three. He says, uh, he goes on to say, it'll be father against son, mother against daughter, daughter against, uh, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law, and so on and so forth, and vice versa. It's, it's not to bring unity. The hatred of the world does not end even with that. Because we see it carry on in verse 13, our last verse. It says, you will be hated by all. You will be hated all because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. King James says, you'll be hated by all men for my name's sake. Church, can I tell you today that if your Christianity does not make the worldly person upset with you, if your personal evangelism never rocks the boat, if your prayer life doesn't annoy someone, you're probably doing it wrong. That's not to say that we should try and be annoying. It's not to say we should be bullies with our faith, not by any means. But if the world around you doesn't hate the Christ within you, one of two things is happening. Either you don't have Christ inside you to the point you, you don't have Christ inside you, period, or you've got him locked in a cage and it's time to open it up. Unlock that door and let the lion of Judah roar in your life. Church, we're living in extreme days, but it's only in Christ we have hope to endure if we're in Christ. That's the kicker. 
if we are in Christ, will endure. If we believe and accept the fact that Christ Jesus, the Son of the living God, died on a cross for our sins to redeem us, if we put our faith in him, if we trust in him, if we know that he rose from the grave and someday we too will rise from the grave, then death has lost its victory. Death means nothing. And we will endure. He promises us, us this. He says, my father has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Therefore, this is Hebrews 7.25, therefore he's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Let me tell you, church, we have no reason to fear, but we have reason to watch. We were born for this time. In fact, I'll say it a better way. We were born again for this time. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And to be born again, like I said, we repent, we believe in the Son. And when we believe, when we trust in him with our lives, no matter what happens, oh death, where is your sting? It becomes our taunt. It becomes a way we mock death because it has no victory over us. It has no victory over our Savior. The one who endures to the end will be saved. I'm going to ask Georgette to come back and, and lead us in worship. This morning, if you will stand with us, we're going to close as we worship. If you're in Christ, you will endure. This is not a message of fear. This is a message of hope. This is a message of victory. This is a message to get excited about because we do not have to fear. We will endure. If you're in Christ, he will never fail you. He didn't save you to fail you. He doesn't redeem you to lose you. Some might hear me say that and say, Pastor, do you, are you trying to say that we can't lose our salvation? Absolutely, I am saying that. Because salvation is not your car keys. You can reject it. You can choose to love this world more than you love him. But if you're in Christ, you will endure. If we want Christ, we get Christ. As we close this morning, we're in a worship. I'm going to ask you this morning, if you're here, maybe you've never accepted Christ. Maybe you've never prayed in humility. Lord Jesus, be my Savior. I need you. Today, I would ask you, take that time, wherever you are. If you're watching online, take that time. Pray that prayer. Lord, today, today is the day I will follow you. Go ahead. I cast all my cares upon you. 